Hey everyone, welcome to Faith in the Fold, the podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Today's episode is part two of my interview with Dr. Dale Manor, Professor Emeritus of Bible and Archaeology from Harding University. In the first half of our interview, which debuted about two weeks ago, we talked about Dr. Manor's involvement in archaeology and what archaeology can and cannot tell us about the Bible. In today's episode, I pose the question to Dr. Manor, what's one thing you wish every Christian knew about the Old Testament? He and I talked about the nature of God, that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. We even dived into the murky waters of what God cannot do. Taking our cue from James chapter 1, God cannot be tempted by evil. On this basis, Dr. Amanda and I talked about the necessity of Jesus' incarnation for saving humanity and some related issues as well. If you enjoy the kinds of conversations we're having on the podcast, would you be willing to like and subscribe to us? And maybe share us with someone that you think might benefit from this. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Dr. Manor, is that the one thing that you wish every Christian would know about the Old Testament? <laughs> we, when I had originally pitched this idea to you, I had uh, I'd said, uh, well, maybe, maybe we could go with this. But I love the route that we've gone. Because well, I've, I think it's helpful for folks kind of to see maybe how, how someone like you, a very firm, committed Christian, but also firmly rooted in, in sort, of the, uh, sort of the scientific exploration, archaeological exploration of the, of the area, you're able to kind of look at these and say, okay, you know, here's, here's how we can kind of make sense of all this. Well, I, uh, mo- most of your listening audience probably will never go into archaeology. I think may, that's I, may I suggest that you not? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's fair. There's yeah. not much money in this. Yeah. Um, it's great for a summer thing. Yeah. I mean, it was you, fun. Yeah. When you, I went. you joined us one year. And yeah. It's had a great time together. Yeah. But uh, one of the things that bothers me, and, and, and this came up, is it's not unique to now. Okay. It, this is, this is, has been an ongoing concern from as far back at least as perhaps the third century AD. Oh. I don't remember exactly the date of this guy. You would you would probably know Marcion or Marcion, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Uh, uh yeah, who argues Marcion, that the usually. God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Right. Yeah. Um kind of yeah, kind of boiling down his uh his view that was there was a sort of a, a, a an a mean creator God who is lesser than God, the father of Jesus, according right. to Marcion. Yeah. Is it Sion? That's how I normally hear it pronounced. Well, okay. Leave it to me to go with the Greek pronunciation. And make or, it or even scene. Latin. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> excuse me. But uh, the, the argument that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New. No, I, I, I do not. I, I think that is a terrible misunderstanding mm-hmm. of the corpus of the Bible, yeah. Old and New Testament. Um, let, let me try to put some of this in perspective, mm-hmm. um, at least my little peon view. Uh, with, with using archaeology as sort of a framework of, of reference here. When I go lecture at churches and places on archaeology and the Bible, 
uh, say I have six lectures. Four of them will deal exclusively almost with the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And maybe four and a half of them. And then I'll have one or two maybe on the New Testament. Mm -hmm. And there's some people that get sort of upset about that. that. Nobody's actually said anything to me overtly about it. But I try to sort of diffuse that. One, I am a Old Testament archaeologist. Sure. Okay. But secondly, the time frame right. that the Old Testament, I mean, even from the time of Abraham, let, let's let's leave alone before Abraham stuff, which yeah. is which is has pick its up, own set of problems. Pick up in Genesis 12, right? And yeah. then go from there. So yeah. so if we go from Genesis 12 to the time of Jesus, we're looking at roughly 2,000 years. Whereas if you go from John the Baptist to the death of John, the apostle, you're looking at maybe a hundred. Yeah. And there's a sense in which the amount of material that you would have available potentially, even though it goes further and further and further back, the amount of material you potentially have available for the Old Testament is significantly greater and in way more diversified than the amount of material you have for this hundred year period associated with Jesus and the apostles. Yeah. Uh, one way to think about it is this: in the time in the time span that the New Testament covers, for the for the area involved, right? Even even taking into account um, all of Paul's travels in the Book of Acts, there is one governing authority that makes a world of difference over over the area. And around that time, during that time period, for that part of the world in question, right? For um, for the area for Judea and Galilee, and even uh, even Asia Minor and and Greece, you know, it's a lot of the places that Acts covers, relatively peaceful. Emphasis on relatively, one governing authority, relatively peaceful. That makes a world of difference compared with sig- uh, with a significant number of regime changes, wars, things like that that we see in the Old Testament. Right. And, and all these factors become important components in how everything unfolds. Mm-hmm. So in, in, our, in our Bible, just sort of a quick and dirty calculation, yeah. three quarters of our Bible is Old Testament. Mm-hmm. A fourth of it is New Testament. Yeah. Uh, there's been, in a sense, even a... Uh, theological regime change not regime change a motif change okay that has shifted from the end of the old testament into the new and by that i don't mean the god has changed okay but but god has shifted from dealing with his people as a national entity in the world (laughs) to a theological entity whose citizenship is in heaven (laughs) from a theocracy on earth to, I'm not sure exactly what you would call us as Christians relative, but it's, it's a theocracy based in heaven that has earthly implications, but God's people now are of all nations and languages and tribes and yeah. so forth. And uh, I've heard it described as a politic, but in a, in a very carefully nuanced sense where... Okay. If, if if that makes sense to you, then yeah, as a politic, but not in the not in the traditional sense where we normally think of politics as in political parties or something along those lines. Now, 
and I, I think one of the problems, and admittedly, when, when we read casually, and I think this is part of the problem, we have a tendency to read too casually, mm-hmm. uh, oftentimes with the freight of what we've heard all of our lives, um, sort of coloring how we look at this. And, mm-hmm. and within certain parameters, it's difficult to escape. Sure. Okay. Uh, you know, we talk about, try to read this as if you've never read it before. Now, for some people, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> but for most of us, at least, who have sort of been raised in the church or right. exposed in, the, in, in, in any, any kind of conservative church in particular sure. uh, for any duration of time, we've, we've heard the stories, we've, we've read portions of scripture and so forth and so on. And so it's not real easy to read it as if you've never read it before. Mm-hmm. So we bring that freight of understanding to the read and most of us have heard of okay god's circumstances you know go go kill everybody in the land of canaan uh the directive given to saul go kill all the amalekites Mm -hmm. Uh, don't don't save anything alive uh we're familiar with david's improprieties sure yeah uh, and so forth. And then we come to the New Testament and Jesus is healing people, feeding people, uh, saving people, uh, and so forth. And it looks like you're, it looks like there are two different dynamics going on here. Mm-hmm. Now, if we begin carefully and thoughtfully to read about the multifaceted character of God in the Old Testament, he is a God who, in the creation, makes the man and the woman in his image. Mm-hmm. I think this is critically important. <laughs> in his image, in his likeness. Mm-hmm. And he gives them dominion. He gives them directives of how basically they're supposed to live. They have three commands they're supposed to follow. And they, they, they screw it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's interesting God doesn't have to tell them be, be fruitful and multiply. That seems to be sort of... <laughs> He later has to give directives. Okay, back off of this a little bit. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, does, that doesn't give you license, uh, Nimrod, to, uh, to to grab every woman you see, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, the second command or expectation is to take care of creation, and you know, we've we've done generally a fairly good job with that, but you know, we need to make some correctives there. Sure. But the third one is, you know, I refer to it as the George of the Jungle rule: watch out for that tree. <laughs> And they mess it up. Right. I mean, think in terms of what life would be if we only had three commands to follow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I tell the students at Harding, we've got more, more rules at Harding than three. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Have you looked at a student handbook recently? <laughs> this this, this right. is all kinds of responses. Yeah. But, uh, but, but God has breathed into their nostrils the breath of life. Mm-hmm. He shared his character with them. They're made in his image. And I, I, I often argue, look at these points of the dignity of the human being. One, we're made in his image. Two, we share in his character. He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. Thirdly, he cares for our well-being, that he, he creates a companion. Now, when right. God makes the woman to be a companion for Adam, she is not brought to him as an inferior. Right. The Hebrew very literally reads, he makes her according to his opposite. And I sort of liken it to 
you know, the deficiencies that are here, she makes up for here. Yeah. Not that there's anything intrinsically deficient, but God has intended these to be people who work together. Yeah. And it's not good that the man be alone. I will make him a helper according to his opposite. That's the one thing that is pronounced not good. I think that's the in, one in, thing. In the account. And, and it, I don't think it's a matter of, oops, I made a mistake. Right, right. I think, and, and the, the, the wonderful story, which regretfully is often just relegated to the children's classes. Mm. God brings animals by and he names them. <laughs> Why does he do that? It, is it because God doesn't know what to name them and he wants Adam to do it? Uh, no, he brings them by. It begins with it's not good for man to be alone. Let mm -hmm. me make a helper according to his opposites. And then you have the animals coming by. And then God creates the woman. And it's an issue. And, and, and Adam responds, wow, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I think God is impressing upon Adam. You dipstick, you're here all by yourself. <laughs> And he, he that's wants the, to, in the Hebrew, right? You did that's in the Hebrew. Yeah, that's, that's the, the Hebrew translation. Yeah. <laughs> and he wants to impress upon Adam that he is alone. In the meantime, he, answers, he names the animals. Mm -hmm. But the naming of the animals is to impress upon him. You're here all by yourself so that when he makes the woman, she will be a particularly valued individual. Yeah. Then the fourth point is God's visiting with him in the garden. Mm -hmm. He comes in the cool of the day. Now, the garden here is not a potato vineyard. It's not a you know, vegetable garden. It's, it, it's to be understood as sort of the classic European palatial grounds. Right. This is a or, lavish yeah. area. It, 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 it's an area where people go to... Uh, stroll away and you know communicate and have tea and i often refer to it as god comes for afternoon tea sure yeah and in the meantime adam and eve have sinned in eating of the forbidden fruit but god comes to have that formalized slash informal relationship with them but they've ruptured it the god of the old testament implements a strategy by which to bring those people back into harmony with him. Yeah. And if you, if a person reads carefully in the text, now there, there are some problematic areas. Okay. But if one reads carefully, the old Testament, it will talk frequently about his love for his people, mm -hmm. how kind he is to them and giving them and providing for them. Now, he has expectations. Now, when the children of Israel uh, are brought out of Egypt and God establishes a covenant with them. Now, this is the, the word covenant is, is important here. Mm -hmm. uh, a quick and dirty definition that I would give of covenant is, an, a, generically, is an agreement between two or more parties each of whom have responsibilities to maintain the agreement. Mm. Now, those, those may be parity covenants where the two parties are of equal power and force, such mm. as we alluded to earlier, the Hittites and the Egyptians. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or they may be suzerain treaties where you have a person who is very, very superior in power, might, and so forth, and someone who can't really bring much to the table. Mm 
Right. This is the kind of covenant agreement that Israel makes. Mm -hmm. But God does not offer this covenant to Israel without any background. To the contrary, while the 10 plagues that are narrated in Genesis and Exodus have as a significant target the gods of Egypt, mm -hmm. which, by the way, does not imply the gods of Egypt are real. Okay. Right. Uh, right. But as far as the people are concerned, they're real. Yeah. So Paul, God's sort of operating with them on the level of their comprehension. Yeah. Paul, uh, Paul gives us some hints in, uh, in 1 Corinthians that, um, that pagan gods are essentially demonic powers. Yeah. But uh, it certainly aren't on the level of him. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. But, but, but rather than trying to tell the Israelites, you know, there aren't any other gods. Right. That's like trying to persuade a, you know, something that is beyond its comprehension. Sure. Yeah. So you have to sort of get down on the level of what the person is able to grasp. Right. The most important thing for the Israelites to know at that point was not, uh, not a you know, statement of theology about, right. about these other so-called gods or false gods. Yeah. And so what, what you have is the, the 10 plagues are something that the Israelites in one way or another witness, if not experience. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I say that is the, the text is clear that the first few of the plagues, all of Egypt suffered, but then there is a differentiation between where the Israelites live and where the Egyptians live. Uh, but you can bet that the Israelites were aware of what's going on over there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And yeah. if nothing else, the Egyptians are going to let them know. <laughs> right. Uh, and then, of course, the last plague is the death of the firstborn, mm -hmm. for which the Israelites have to respond in some fashion. Mm -hmm. And then the Israelites are liberated, sort of. Okay. They're on their way. They get to the Red Sea. They complain. They whine. God opens the Red Sea. They walk across on dry ground. Uh, then they start having problems with water and manna, and they encounter the Amalekites, uh, and uh, they defeat the Amalekites, and finally come to Mount Sinai, and God is going to come down. Exodus 19 is just a fantastic chapter. Mm -hmm where God is going to come down. He says, put a, put a boundary around this mountain. Don't let anybody pass this boundary. And if anybody does, kill them. And in order to kill them, you do not go after them because this is sacred. You shoot them with arrows or sling stones at them from a distance and execute them that way. But don't anybody pass this. If I were among the Israelites at that point, I would think, what in the world have we got into? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So God is going to come down with thunder and lightning and darkness and uh, noise and just, just mind shattering. And, and God tells Moses, you have the Israelites prepare for this. Don't let anybody approach this. I'm going to come down in this fashion because I'm going to talk to you, Moses. And I want them to overhear me talking to you mm -hmm. so that they will know that you are the spokesman. Mm -hmm. And of course, after all this happens, it's exactly how the Israelites respond. We don't want to hear them anymore. You take care of it. <laughs> And yeah. uh, God is happy for this. 
But then the rest of the book of Exodus is a strategy by which the tabernacle is the tent of meeting. Right. So God has to be approached with respect of who he is. But yet at the same time, he paves the way for a way to be a part and be one with him. Mm-hmm. Now, the point that I'm trying to make at this juncture is the covenant that they make is, I think, in Exodus 23, 23 or 24, when God says, look at what all I have done for you. Will you be my people? Mm-hmm. And will you follow my rules? And they say, yes, we will. Well, this is the all-powerful God with evidence that he's provided. You have legitimate reason to understand who I am, and I can ask this of you. So it wasn't a whimsical kind of response. Right. Ten plagues crossing the Red Sea, water, manna, uh, victory over the Amalekites, the witness of the mountain. They knew the power of God. Mm-hmm. So God has established a rapport with the Israelites in this covenant. Yeah. Now, from that point on, the problem tends to be Israel keeps failing the covenant. And it's sort of like someone who marries a, a spouse. And at that ceremony, yeah, we, you know, we'll, we'll be faithful to each other as long as we both shall live. Mm-hmm. And the next week, one of them goes out and has an affair. And God constantly is pleading with Israel to come back to him. Mm-hmm. But there are times when, when they won't, he has to punish them. Now, the fact that God is patient and pleading with them to come back. I mean, the book of Judges, while there's a lot of horrible things going on in the book of Judges, the point is to try to get Israel to come back to him. Right. And, you know, I've promised you that if you will follow me, then I will bless you. Your, your flocks will reproduce, your fields will reproduce, your families will reproduce. I will bless you and you'll have harvest that will go into the sowing time of next year and your harvest of next season. You'll have more than enough. But if you don't follow me, this disparity, if you don't follow me, here are the consequences. And God was always up front with them. Mm-hmm. about the consequences definitely one of the major thrusts of deuteronomy yeah, yeah. and we, we have a tendency to read the old testament and collapse all of this into all of this took place maybe in a hundred years no <laughs> now again let's let's talk in terms of from sinai to uh malachi malachi yeah okay from yeah. sinai to malachi so we're looking at roughly 800 years, 900 maybe, mm-hmm. early date, maybe 1,000. Yeah. Okay. 1,000 a, a is a comfortable. And, and, and that's workable. Yeah. That's four times the duration of the history of the United States of America. Right. Right. And 10 times the amount of time that the New Testament covers in terms yeah. of years. And yeah. the... 
the tirades that tend to come into play, such as Hosea and Amos and Micah, and then Jeremiah and Ezekiel, tend to come clustered at locations where things have gotten so bad right. that God is sort of at his wit's end mm-hmm. to try to get them to straighten up. And even in those books, there is constantly the, the statement, if, if you read it carefully, if you'll come back to me, everything will be okay. Now, again, there's love and kindness and, and consideration, but there's also judgment. Yeah. Let's move to the New Testament real quick. Right. Jesus talks about hell <laughs> more than he talks about heaven. Yeah. And when you get into most of the letters, Romans to the book of Revelation, there are significant chunks of those that have to do with the goodness and severity of God. Mm-hmm. The Hebrew writer will talk about it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yeah. And the book of Revelation is judgment rendered against those who refuse to comply and, and, and live by God's will, whereas there's blessing to those who do. I mean, you have a continuation of the same kind of issues. Now, admittedly, yeah. the, the theological domains are different mm-hmm. in that in the Old Testament, it's a theocracy on earth. Right. Dealing with a group of people who are supposed to be living and following God's rule here, whereas in the New Testament, it is my kingdom is not of this world. It is multiple languages and peoples and tribes and traditions and everything mm-hmm. else. And it's a spiritual domain. We do not have, nor do we have the authority as God's people to be the political punitive measures. Yeah. That's, pol- that's, that's politics. That's earthly stuff. Mm-hmm. And hence, you have no indication in the New Testament right. ever of legitimacy of church executing anybody. Mm. but there is judgment romans will talk about it corinthians will talk about it right uh the the pastoral letters to one degree or another will talk about it hebrews talks about it mm. peter and jude talk about it second <laughs> peter in particular second yeah. peter and jude uh john talks about it in his letters mm. no there is judgment now i, I this is going to show up backwards <laughs> I think it, it looks, it looks right to me. Okay. Yeah. Is God a moral monster? I no, highly recommend this book. And that's my Paul Copan. Paul Copan. Copan. I think that's how it's pronounced, but he addresses a lot of the, the new, the new atheism, you know, Hitchens and Hawkins and the uh, late Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, others will bring up all kinds of things, mm-hmm. and he addresses a lot of those kinds of questions. Now, at this juncture, I, I, I'm working through the book. I'm not totally through it yet. Uh, some of it, I think, I sort of scratch my head. Eh, I'm not so sure about that one. But he goes a long way in reasonably, as it comes back to sort of the pig bone issue. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Here's his, his response. A believer can look at that and say, wow, that makes, that makes sense. Right. A non-believer will look at it and say, that's malarkey. 
but this is the nature of evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is no evidence that is so compelling of any of anything that you are forced to believe it. Jesus himself acknowledges that when he uh, when he tells someone, even if someone comes back from the dead, yeah. they won't believe you. When he's talking, uh, when he's giving the parable, even if someone comes back from the dead, they won't believe. Which is a great bit of foreshadowing for what happens. Sort of scary. Yeah. I mean, think about the implications. Something is earth shattering. Well, in Matthew, literally, right? Earth shattering as uh, the resurrection. Now, let me, let me throw in one other thing. And I would be interested, perhaps, in hearing your take on this. Okay. One, I, as my opening premises, I think the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the same God. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, the the caricature of a monster god in the Old Testament and a loving god in the New Testament is based to a large extent upon selective passages. Yes, and ignoring the larger context. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly what to make of this. When Jesus. And it may be naivete on my part. Uh, earlier, I told you I'm not a theologian, but I'm trying to do some theology here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're heading into dangerous waters. <laughs> um, when Jesus comes to earth, now, it, another footnote, proviso. I don't always know how to factor in certain things about God. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody does. How do you factor in omniscience? How do you factor in omnipotence? Yeah. I mean, no, nobody can really get their heads around this. Yeah. Uh, in spite of, you know, some valiant efforts. And I don't mean to minimize those who wrestled with this. Sure. Yeah. But when Jesus becomes, when, when God becomes flesh and dwells among us, John 1. Okay. I do believe there's still a father in heaven. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I believe the, in the Godhead, right. you know, the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus becomes flesh, God becomes flesh and dwells among us. He then, after his life on earth, he becomes our advocate with the Father. Mm. Well, the advocate, the idea of the advocate is a go-between. Paul and Timothy will refer to him as a mediator between God and man, himself, man, Jesus Christ, man in this case being human. Okay. The issue of maleness is that's not the point that is humanity. And there's a sense in which the deity of Jesus and his humanity serves as a two edged sword. Or you could look at it as a bi-directional blessing. God cannot be tempted, James says. Right. Jesus was tempted. Now, mm-hmm. some will argue that Jesus couldn't have been tempted because he was God. That, that misses the point here. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'll admit that, you know, I have some troubles with this, but sure. I have to take it at the, at, on, on the basis of what the point's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So, but Jesus overcame them, tempted at all points like as we are yet without sin, Hebrew writer will affirm. So in his role as a mediator, 
I envision it may be, and I, I emphasize the maybe. Okay. Yeah. Please don't make this is. Right. Yeah. It may be the case that the father might not be able to understand what temptation is. Interesting. But his son, who is, who is God, who became flesh and was tempted, can now explain to the father in terms that the father can understand mm. what temptation's like. Yeah. I can see how that could make some folks uncomfortable because you start talking about what God can't do. But, well, but we would all say affirm. he can't be tempted. Uh, uh, yeah, James, James says it pretty clearly. And uh, there's nothing within God to, it, to elicit any kind of tempting feelings. God can right. sin. Now, let, let, let me finish now. Yeah. Now, now, the flip side of that is the person who argues, well, I couldn't help it to sin. Mm -hmm. Jesus then can come in and say, wait a minute. I know what it's like to be human. And you were too quick to succumb. You did not appropriately yield yourself to the will of the Father to overcome that temptation. And so Jesus bridging this, the father and the human role intercedes with the father on our behalf, but also serves as the judge <laughs> right. of us mm -hmm. as we try to weasel out of our own responsibility. And so maybe there's an element of the mediation of Christ hasn't changed God, but it puts the focus in a different emphasis. Yeah. Does that make any sense? I think it does. I think it does. Now I'm probably uh, going to get ripped to shreds by somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Some, somebody, uh, somebody might be kind enough to, to mention something in the comments. It, I, I don't know that I've ever heard of it put like this where you know, God can't understand or something along those lines and, and th that's how you worded it right and and, and it, it may be more accommodative than it is objective sure yeah yeah i i there's do a sense think... in which you can it, it, there's a sense in which you can legitimately ask okay why <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> for those of you who couldn't tell Dr. Mayer's, for those who are just, just listening, Dr. Mayer's phone started ringing and it's the Raiders team. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark, right. not the, not the not, football team. <laughs> right, no. yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark team. Yeah. Uh, uh, we were talking about something a lot more important than that. What right. were we talking about? So wh why, and I don't know the answer to this. Okay. <laughs> why would Jesus need to function as a mediator between as an advocate for us to the father. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, it may be accommodative. It may be to diffuse the argument of some that God can't understand me. Right. Because through Jesus's experiences, he certainly does. Right. Yeah. 
I tend to go when we start asking questions about about Jesus's humanity and divinity and how all those kind of interwork, inter, interact with each other. I tend to find myself gravitating towards Philippians two, where Paul has this great discussion of uh, of uh, what is technically termed kenotic Christology. This notion yeah. where Jesus empties himself. The Greek word kenosis there means uh, an emptying of sorts, and hence we get our English word kenotic, where Jesus empties himself um, and takes up takes up really what are limitations. Yeah, you know, for someone who's still fully gone and, and you know fully man, he, he voluntarily takes up limitations on that. He's no longer omnipresent, right? He's no longer omnipresent. I don't um, know what those limitations are, but yeah, uh, uh, right. Yeah, there's yeah, it, it it's a mystery, and I, I don't mean that in the sense that the New Testament uses the word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, uh, let me quickly get to a couple of other sources. I appreciate I that. Recommend. Yeah. We, we, uh, we can put a pin on that one and maybe come back uh, at, at another time for this, another episode. This set. By John Walton. Yeah, John Walton. Uh, Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. Now, there's one, there's a set for the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. And there's a set for the New Testament. Okay. I'm showing you the Old Testament because this is primarily the framework the one in have, which yeah. our inquiry is pursued. Right. Um, and it, it's very, very important to understand in these that these are not theological. Right. That's not they the are background commentaries. Yeah. They're contextual commentaries. Historical, geographical, cultural, right. things like and, that. And some linguistic and literary from the standpoint of contemporary literature that might help us understand what's going on. Yeah. Now, the emphases of, that the authors, the individual authors bring to the respective texts will vary somewhat. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, uh, Richard Hess, who does the part on Joshua mm-hmm. in this series, uh, is much more contemporary, ancient contemporary literature oriented sure. in his discussion. Right. Whereas and be a little self-centered here, I, <laughs> writing on the book of Ruth, right. am more archaeological as well. I mean, Richard deals with archaeology, but yeah. I deal more with archaeology and less so with literature. He deals more with literature and less so with archaeology. Sure. Right. Each, and, and this is to be expected, but they're background commentaries. Right. And uh, hence, uh, for instance, in the, in the New Testament set, uh, in the book of Acts, they will talk about. Uh, let me see. I'm trying to remember the passage offhand. Uh, it's in it's in the book of Acts, and it's talking about the the curses and so forth, and things that are written. Uh, okay, would it be uh, Acts 19 where the the, the, Eph- the Ephesus Acts chapter uh, 19 where they burned their magical papyri, basically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, what are some of those things right. and how are we understand them? Uh, they're often referred to as the Ephesian letters, yeah. uh, but it has nothing to do with our book of Ephesians. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. But th- those curses and there's an, int- there's some really interesting background issues 
that help us better appreciate what all is going on. Mm -hmm. Now, on a certain level, we can understand them fairly straightforwardly. But the more these contextual things are brought to bear, one, typically, uh, there's a sense in which we see the timelessness of the character of humanity. (laughs) Uh, Secondly, it it enriches the texture of the narrative and sometimes even the doctrinal issues. And... Copan in his book, for instance, is God uh, he, a moral monster, right? Yeah. He he talks about the argument that God is self-centered and because he wants people to worship him and he's jealous. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard this discussion. Uh, and he also talks about God's child abuse in having Abraham sacrifice Isaac. Right. He does wonderful discussions of that, that are very reasonable. And contextually, he brings a lot of those issues. He talks about the argument about the Old Testament and its misogyny, his, its women hatred. And he, one of the points that he brings up is a contrast of what the Bible is doing contrary to what is going on in the Hittite and the Syrian and Babylonian world. Right. And there is a dramatic, typically a dramatic difference. Mm -hmm. Now, admittedly, it's not up to the level that we would look at from Western civilization. Sure. Sure. And uh, one of the points that Copan makes is that sort of like what I hinted at earlier, God is dealing with them sort of on a developmental level to bring them along to a level of maturity. Right. And the, I'm, I think there's a really strong argument to be made that when you look at what the best of sort of what modern Western civilization offers in regards of treatment of women, em- emphasis on the best of what it what it offers, you you can't get to this point without the developmental stages of a Judeo-Christian worldview. No, I would agree. I think that's a strong argument. There's a there's a fascinating um, <clears throat> there's a fascinating discussion or a series of discussions going on sort of in the in the podcast world uh with uh, with a gentleman by the name of justin Brierly. he runs the unbelievable podcast and has uh, has folks on like uh, like nt Wright and, and other folks on there pretty regularly to be in conversation with people who are non-believers or maybe non-traditional believers in some sense and it's fascinating to hear People, um, historians who have no faith background or who long since you know neglect or rejected their faith background, they look back on uh, you know, sort of you know, their writings of you know, Roman history or something like that, and they realize, oh wow, this this world of Rome is that that I would have thought was my intellectual ancestor or something along those lines. It, it, it's actually very different. Um, the kinds of things that we would experience that one would experience say in pagan Rome versus the kinds of uh, kinds of things that were said about how one treats others, specifically women, uh, children, slaves, etc. Um, I mentioned those three groups because they show up in Ephesians, Colossians, and first Peter. The Judeo-Christian worldview gives us basically the foundations for that. And it's interesting to see these guys, either atheists or agnostics come to recognize that sort of thing. Uh, it seems uh, seems to be is somewhat in line with kind of what we've been talking about just a second ago. Yeah. So it's gone a moral monster by Paul Copan, uh, Copan. And then 
the Zondervan Illustrated Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary, specifically the one you mentioned was uh, the one for the Old Testament, uh, edited by John Walton. Yeah, the other is by edited by Arnold, the New Testament counterpart. Clint, Clinton Arnold, is yes. that right? Okay, yeah. Uh, and uh, that one's four volumes. The Old Testament was five volumes. They can be bought individually. Okay. Yeah, they can be acquired fascically by book that okay. you're interested in. Yeah. I don't know what they do with Ruth or Nobadiah. You know, <laughs> they're right. so short. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and you can also, they're also available on ebook as well. Cool. So, yeah. Uh, they can be accessed. I don't know if they're available on Accordance yet. Yeah. I know with Accordance, they have at, at least the, the Bible background commentaries published by InterVarsity Press. So not, yeah, Walton not had a Zondervan, role but, in that. Yeah. But these yeah. are significant expansions beyond that. Cool. Cool. I've got the one. Uh, I use the one with the by the New Testament, um, the Bible background commentary on the New Testament, uh, written by Craig Keener quite a bit. Um, mm -hmm. So, anyway. By the way, these have a lot of pictures. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely something that would be worth, say, like, if you're uh, if you're at a church large enough to have a church library, those would be the kinds of things that would that yeah. would go really well in a church library. If you definitely. yourself found them either prohibitively expensive or you didn't need the whole set or something along those lines, yeah, that would be great. Uh, Mom, if you're listening, <laughs> check those out for the for the yeah, church library. <laughs> yeah, uh, Doctor Mayor, let me ask you one more thing uh, related to kind of some uh, some resources, and I, I know we'll we'll wrap up uh, wrap up our time together today. Um, John Walton has a series of books entitled The Lost World of, and then, you know, the following, you know, either Genesis right. 1, Genesis 2, I, and I think a, a handful of others maybe. Have you read any of those? What do you think about them? If you have, would you recommend them? It, uh, if, you've, if you've read them, if you've not, then I guess it's moot. Uh, I've, I've read some of them, uh, not all of them. Uh, and they're provocative. I mean that in a good way. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't necessarily agree with where he ends up on some of them. Sure. Um, I'm not sure about, to, to me, his Genesis 1 discussion, while I, I appreciate it as there, there's a sense in which it's sort of a restoration mindset. Yeah, where he is attempting to argue that we need to look at this and interpret it on the basis of how the people to whom it was given would have understood it. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure in my mind he's made his case Fair enough. in the alternative discussion. I think he's sort of overdrawn it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but certainly it is sufficient discussion to give us pause yeah and to be careful about dogmatism agreed um so while not agreeing with all his conclusions would you be would you uh feel comfortable recommending it as this is a worthwhile discussion to at least be be aware of yeah yeah i would that's fair I That's would. Uh, he, he's taking nothing away from the, the drama of the creation story. Right. right. Uh, 
I, and he's, he's not, he argues that this is not addressing the issue of creationism right. or he's, evolutionism. He, he's trying, he's trying, he's trying to, I, I think in some ways he's trying to make the case that Genesis one is, is not necessarily speaking to those issues. Yeah. And I, I, on a certain level, I agree with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when it, when it comes to the creation story, and when I say story, I'm not suggesting it's fiction right. or not. Let creation, me, the creation narrative. Account me, narrative, yeah. yeah. Um, I believe that the book of Genesis, in a sense, is a book that was delivered to the children of Israel, probably at Mount Sinai, mm-hmm. to orient them to who God is. Who is this God that we... That has delivered us. Why are we out here? Because <laughs> uh, you know, there, there seems not to have been sufficient time earlier to orient them to all of this. So right. they're sort of operating uh, in not in a vacuum, but with a, with a lack of ideal knowledge. It seems like they know the patriarchs. And yeah, they do. They knew they knew something about their history. There was, but the, like four hundred years, right? So yeah. four hundred years ago, we're thinking, you know, King James, right? Right. 400 years have passed. They have some basic knowledge. Uh, and there's still a lot of questions. Hey, uh, we've been in slavery for a long time. What's going on here? And, and one of the big issues is they've lived in a very polytheist, very polytheistic world. Yes. Yes. Very much uh, so. Their historical heritage roots are in a very polytheistic world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these cosmogenies that characterize the Egyptians and the Mesopotamians and the Greeks, although the Greeks are not in the picture yet, uh, are very tumultuous mm-hmm. uh, chaos. I mean, multiple gods fighting and fussing with each other. Yeah. And there is duplicitousness, uh, killing and all kinds of things. And the, the, the dignity, that's, again, the contrast, the dignity of the creation's account stands in dramatic contrast yeah. with all of the others. And the point is, all that you see here is the result of a God who created it all. And it was all good. Right. Not chaotic. I mean, while there is without form and void right at the beginning. Right. Uh, that's a different issue than the chaos and right. dueling and fighting and dueling that characterized the Egyptian and Mesopotamian worlds. L- let me let me comment on that just for a second uh, because uh, I don't want folks to miss that. When you mention formless and void, that is typically how our English translations describe what the Spirit of God is hovering over there in Genesis 1. Spirit of God is hovering over the waters and... The earth was formless and void. One way I've heard some folks describe that is uh, maybe a better way of translating that would be something like wild and waste. So imagine a desert, right? If there's stuff out there, sure, you might have a dead tree or some rocks and a bunch of sand. But in another sense, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. Uh, And so to take. Exactly. Yeah. Functionally. Functionally, I would compare it for the purposes of what's going on uh, to watching my wife make bread. You have all the stuff, all the stuff that's randomly here. Right. And she then puts it together and it looks like a mess at the start. Yeah. And she 
brings it into fashion. And then, and then afterwards, it is good. Right. Yeah, it yeah. is good. <laughs> yeah. And but so like, but that's so when you talk about chaos in Genesis chapter one, the the waters here are chaotic in a sense, meaning there's there's no order. There's, there's no order. There's no peace. There's no beauty. There's no goodness here. Right. It's just we have this compared to these other ancient Near Eastern accounts where the chaos is warring gods and destruction and uh, and, and things like that. Right. It's very different. Very different. Dr. Manor, I have greatly appreciated our time. That's not already asked. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 I suspect that what I'll end up doing is um, is I'll, I'll trim this episode to be kind of a two-parter because we covered a lot. <laughs> we, we were expecting to go for about an hour. Uh, I'm looking at about hour two right now. And so <laughs> I really, but I, I enjoy the conversation, especially the beginning stuff about kind of how archaeology works, hearing from someone like yourself, who is a, who is a recognized archaeologist, not just in Church of Christ circles, but you know, folks who, folks who especially know the archaeology of Israel and, and need to run across uh, Telbet Shemesh at any point, they have run across your name. And so, Dr. Manor, if you could tell us uh, just one more thing briefly, kind of wrap us up. Give, could you give a plug for the Archaeology Museum there at Harding University in Searcy, Arkansas? Can you tell us just kind of briefly about what that is and maybe encourage folks to go check it out? Okay, at uh, about five years ago, four, four or five years ago, we began uh, Museum of Biblical Archaeology. It's the Linda Bird Smith Museum of Biblical Archaeology. She is the one that uh, funded its creation. Mm -hmm. And uh, the artifacts in it, uh, almost all of them in one way or the other, relate to the biblical world. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it is not intended to be, you know, a museum of... right. Aztec archaeology or Native American, yeah. not to denigrate those at sure. all, but it's a, a biblical archaeology museum. Mm -hmm. And most of the items that are in there are authentic. Uh, some of them are replicas and reproductions, mm -hmm. although I try when I have those to do have reproductions that are reasonably uh, realistic, mm -hmm. uh, not just, you know, stamped out of a cereal <laughs> box. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I have some reproductions from the British Museum, for instance, of the Taylor Prism and of Cyrus Decree and mm -hmm. so forth. Very well done. And uh, it's free. It, it doesn't take a lot of time. There are about 100 items on display yeah. in the museum, and, and we change part of it at least every couple of years or so, mm -hmm. so to keep it sort of fresh. Yeah. Uh, at this point, one of the, two, two of the interesting things are a Greek helmet reproduction mm -hmm. and a Roman centurion helmet. Very in cool. the next rendition, Lord willing, we will have a full Roman centurion armor, Ooh. full size. Yeah. So uh, that ought game. to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Dr. Manor, again, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it, sir. And uh, look forward to um, look forward to be able to publish this. And uh, hopefully some folks will, their interest in the Old Testament will be piqued. And okay. they'll, uh, they'll be able to realize or maybe realize uh, more than they had that the old testament really is worth digging into and like you said earlier not just casually reading it you know for the for the fun stories or you know sunday morning bible lessons for the kids but really digging into it to see and understand the character of god 
because that same God is the father of Jesus Christ. So, Dr. Manner, take care, sir. God bless you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.